Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio, and you're listening to The Economist Asks. And this week we're wondering, is Brexit a disaster for trade? Trade deals are a kind of myth. We haven't had trade deals with many countries apart from the European Union. The objective of government, at least, should be to pursue these deals. They're not simply fetishised. Many times as Britain's election campaign sped through its 50 days, Prime Minister Theresa May brought the focus back onto Brexit and her supposed strength as a negotiator. She even went as far as disrobing her opponent, Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn. He will find himself alone and naked in the negotiating chamber of the European Union. Mr Corbyn says, on the contrary, he and his chosen team of negotiators will be fully clothed. Labour is ready ready to deliver a deal that gives British business and British society the chance to thrive in a post-Brexit world. All this underscores the immense challenge facing the party elected. On the day Britain finally leaves the EU, it will automatically be withdrawn from hundreds of treaties. Brexit is about nothing less than remaking Britain's relationship with the world. So just how important are trade deals in finding success post-Brexit and how are businesses grappling with a period of great uncertainty? To answer these questions, I spoke to Lord Marland, former trade envoy under David Cameron and currently chairman of the Commonwealth Enterprise and Investment Council. And joining us in the studio too was Callum Williams, the Economist's Britain economics correspondent. I started by asking Jonathan Marland about the hurdles he faced in his tenure as trade envoy, a role he held from 2012 through to 2014. Well, there'd been over-reliance by British business on the internal market and the European market through the boom period. And when we obviously went through the financial crisis, Europe was going through a financial crisis, as was the UK, so orders from those economies were not forthcoming. And the problem we found was that British business really had the relationships beyond Europe had dwindled apart from America. So it was really reactivating those relationships which had withered on the vine. So point us forward now, if you could. The government that gets elected on June the 8th has a huge task ahead. I think there are some estimates that the UK will have to renegotiate over 700 treaties. But are there really enough resources, enough skilled negotiators in government to replace the deals that Britain will eventually lose? Well, the short answer is no, because, as you said, there's a lot of deals that need potentially need negotiating. And I've been on record saying that actually I think the skill set within government is not adequate to cope with what's coming around the corner. However, trade deals are a kind of myth. We haven't had trade deals with many countries uh, apart from the European Union. We don't have a trade deal with the biggest single country we deal with, which is America, Uh, nor have we, for example, with many of our Middle Eastern friends, Japan, China, etc. We have obviously a relationship with China now, but uh, we haven't had. Therefore, uh, I think business will take over and play its role in developing trade. So Callum is our internal expert. What do you make of that? Trade deals are 
to a large extent, a myth, Jonathan says. Well, you're absolutely right. We don't have a trade deal with um, America at the moment. I think the evidence is that trade deals do make a really quite a large difference to trade. I mean, if you look at what happened to the British economy after joining the European Economic Community in the early 70s, I mean, it's quite clear that trade between the UK and the and the EU increased. Uh, if you look at the evidence on the uh, utility of the World Trade Organization, it's now pretty clear that that makes quite a big difference as well. Having rules and regulations in place to facilitate particularly trade in services is very important. That is not to say, of course, that we absolutely need a trade deal with every single country in the world in order to uh, trade with them. And, and I'm sure, as, as you know better than I do, you know, trade with countries outside the uh, EU has been increasing. But I think the objective of government at least, should be to pursue these deals. They're not simply fetishised. So trade is increasing outside the EU, or will shortly be the old EU deals that Britain has had. But the scepticism, Jonathan, is that other deals won't come on stream fast enough, and there simply won't be enough of them. Are you confident that there will be? Well, I would uh, argue that uh, trade deals are necessary only if the rules of engagement between two countries are not reliable. So, for example, if you can't trust country A to rely on the rule of law to provide a secure country in terms of tariffs where or, to, or there is a, an issue of bribery and corruption, then you need a trade deal because you need to have very clear rules of engagements between country to country. Now, happily, that those sort of countries are diminishing fast. And because of our uh, Bribery Act, which I think was an excellent piece of legislation, British companies actually can't trade with those sort of countries anyway where there is the possibility of corruption. So, uh, as I said, trade deals are a political myth in many ways. I've been a practitioner, an international businessman for many years before I got into politics. Uh, We never needed trade deals between countries Uh, In our business, which was insurance, we found it very difficult to do business with European countries uh, where they had their own internal cartels and tariffs, which were not uh, necessarily obvious uh, or transparent, but but existed, which prevented us from opening businesses in those countries, whereas it was much easier to deal in America, in the Middle East, in uh, Japan and some of the other uh, countries in in the world. Callum. Well, I think... Let's look at the UK's second largest goods export, which is the car industry. Now, what happens in terms of regulation of that industry is very important in terms of trade. Now, as it stands, the UK sends very few cars, or Europe, actually, the EU sends very few cars for export to America. And that is partly because, or largely because, the regulations governing really kind of minor things like the size of windscreens and like, you know, how much the windscreen wipers have to cover, which, you know, with the area they have to cover and so on, are quite different. So it is true that both the EU and America are both advanced Uh, rich, advanced economies that respect the rule of law. Nonetheless, there are barriers to trade that exist. So I think if we're thinking about what are the really big goods exports, for instance, from the UK, we're talking about basically chemicals and cars. Both of those things actually do need quite kind of specific agreements between different markets. I I can't speak for the insurance industry. Well, they're not the really biggest um, exports from the UK because uh, obviously our financial services and all the accountancy, legal Uh, media, those are seriously big exports, which very few people can put a value on them, but we know that they exist and they're substantial. But I completely agree with you, uh, by the way, in terms of relationship with America. 
America has become an unreliable uh, market for a number of British companies. You see the way that they treated BP. You see the way they find British banks, uh, HSBC in particular. And, of course, uh, amplifying on what you said, uh, the US FDA are notoriously trenchant in terms of their defence of uh, American business uh, to the detriment of, obviously, British exports. So I would like to see a much clearer relationship with America. Something also I think I would sort of concede, as it were, is that when we think about doing a deal with the EU, what most of the evidence looks at is the impact on Britain from joining the EU. And then what they basically do is kind of reverse it. So they say if, if Britain's GDP increased by so much on joining the EU, then it's likely to fall on leaving the EU. And I think that might be an assumption too far. We, there's, there's very little evidence on what happens when countries actually leave trade agreements as opposed to joining them. So it mm. is quite possible that even if we don't receive some sort of deal, that the kind of relationships that have been established thanks to the single market can endure to a much greater extent than perhaps people think at this stage. Mm. Would the size of Theresa May's majority actually shape the approach that the government takes towards Brexit negotiations? Is it a case, Jonathan, that a big majority sees her approach it differently or even ask for something different to if she has a small or a slight one? Well, inevitably, as a prime minister, you're going to be considering what backbench MPs and opposition MPs challenge you with. And the greater the strength of that challenge, the more malleable she's got to be to those challenges. And of course, if you've got a a very substantial majority, you will have the ability to go and negotiate pretty much as you wish. And I think, therefore, the, the election of Theresa May will require a strong mandate for us to get the best deal out of Europe. That almost sounds like a Tory party propaganda, which, of course, it's not. But I think it's self-evident that is the case that whoever's prime minister will need a strong mandate to negotiate. A transitional deal then at the back end of this parliament, assuming Theresa May goes gets a transitional deal by 2019. Is that realistic? I think it's realistic in uh, certain sectors. Uh, I don't think it's realistic in all sectors. I think there will almost certainly be a longer transition period over financial services. I think there's a lot more digestion. And actually, there's will from both sides to ensure that this is managed very carefully and uh, to everyone's benefit. There's no question that in in certain areas, there will be a very quick deal done. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the the worry before the election was called was that reaching a transitional deal in 2000, sort of early to mid-2019, could be electorally difficult insofar as they'd have to go to the polls quite soon after. And now, you know, if she manages to reach some sort of thing by, by, by 2019, she'll have a number of years before the next election. So, I mean, that's why whenever the polls show that Labour's catching up with the Tories, the pound falls, and whenever it shows that you know, the Tories are going to get a big majority, the pound rises, the financial markets are very, very clear about what they want from this election. And what about immigration policy? Obviously, it has a huge effect on the success of trade deals or, or the lack of them. India, for example, has made clear that any trade agreement would have to include a concession on migration. And yet, Jonathan Theresa May is sticking to the yearly net migration figure of 100,000. In fact, she's renewed that promise. Is it one she can keep? I, I'm chairman of the Commonwealth Enterprise and Investment Council, which is responsible for trade within the Commonwealth. So India is a very key part of um, our organisation. I think uh, it's going to be part of India's negotiation. But India for Britain has to change. We now face a situation where businesses are retreating, British businesses are retreating from India 
because it's very difficult for them to make money. There's too much bureaucracy. Uh, there is corruption. And we're seeing that, as I said, British businesses are retreating from India. So citing the Indian example is not necessarily the one, even though it appeals to the media, is not uh, not necessarily the one that I would cite in this argument. What would you say? Well, I would cite a lot of Commonwealth countries, for example, where the Queen is sovereign. Uh, why, for example, is Australia, why do they not have royal visas, for example, which could be an idea that should be floated or considered, where the Queen is sovereign, where we have outstanding relationships uh, within the Commonwealth, where they operate on very transparent and free enterprise rules. Why would it not be better for Britain to do a deal with those countries, set an example of how you should operate in a deal, and take that forward. What's wrong with that, Callum? No, there's nothing wrong with it at all. I mean, I just think we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that Australia is a country that is a very, very long way away. And the amount of extra kind of commerce that you're likely to generate between the UK and Australia is is limited. It, the tabloids do also fixate on Australia. They, they do fixate on India, you're absolutely right. But they also fixate on Australia, this idea we're going to start importing loads of lamb from New Zealand and all that sort of stuff. I just think that... It's great. It's obviously great, but uh, it's not the shouldn't be the primary concern of policy. Quick repost there, Jonathan. If you were a card player, you would understand what quick tricks are, and the quick tricks are going to be with those countries where you have relationships, where you have transparency and a free and open economy, and Australia, New Zealand, and others fit into that category. Absolutely. I, uh, absolutely. So they're the quick tricks. The other thing is that it is proven that it's nineteen percent cheaper to do business intra Commonwealth, despite the time difference, because you have. Same language, same rule of law, basically the same systems, a lot of shared subliminal things like cricket, for example, football, rugby, all those sort of things where we've shared so much. So those are the quick tricks. The longer game, and in my view, the more important game, are Japan, America, China. I'm going to break up a a bit of your past, Jonathan. You were uh, someone who turned around a company called Hunter Wellies and made the humble Wellington boot something rather fashionable and indeed very exportable as well. What did you learn from that experience about the way that trade works in practice that might have some application as we read the runes of what British trade might look like in the years ahead? Well, you flatter me by saying I turned it round. I did lead the investors that acquired it and we put in the management to do it. So thanks to the management, we turned it round. But America, simple answer. We had 8 million of sales. They doubled when we went into America. America is almost the easiest market to get into for most businesses, as I found with our insurance business when we started that. Uh, we doubled sales within you know, an 18-month period, and it is the most open and ready market to do deals in. Is that really the, the great Wellington way forward? Is America really where we should be pointing? Is that the takeaway from this in a much more difficult time with the altogether bigger challenge of trade after Brexit, Callum? America is obviously a, a, a large market. It's got a stronger economy than the than the uh, than the European Union. I mean, I know. I think I think probably you should be looking trade policy should be you know geared towards China in particular and India and so on. I just think the overarching priority at this stage is to reach some sort of sensible deal with our single largest trading partner. And I think really at this stage, most other things are somewhat of a distraction. You're a great supporter of Boris Johnson, Jonathan. He's foreign secretary. I suppose his job is also affected by how well this works out. Do you, one, do you expect to still see him in the same job after June the 8th? 
you know, I'm a great supporter of Theresa May. I'm a great supporter of many uh, of the Conservative Party winning the next election. So uh, it's not, not related just to Boris. Uh, I have absolutely no idea whether he'll keep his job or not. It's not for me to even speculate. The most important thing is that we have ministers who can deal with what's coming round the corner. And as Callum says, it is going to be a very significant and focusing event. I worry that we haven't got a strong enough team within the civil service to support this, which is going to be a very difficult thing. Some people would say you should have thought of that before people like Boris supported Brexit. You're quite right. The government should have prepared for things post-Brexit, but Mm. they refused to. So that was a big mistake, and I argued that they should have done. Callum's point is, of course, a very important one, but it is you are dealing with 27 countries. And to deal with 27 countries, to get a result, as we found with Canada, as we found with America, where despite the uh, European Court's recent ruling, is going to be a very tortuous event. And my point as a businessman is that actually 20 of those countries are not countries I necessarily want to sell into. They're not in my top list of priority markets. And uh, therefore, let that process happen, let the negotiations happen. But business must drive into the markets where it has its quickest results, its best results, and its most reliable uh, market. You share that optimism, Callum? No, I don't. While I think you might not want to sell into 20 or of the 27 countries, that's absolutely right. The reality is you have to deal with all 27 countries. Mm. And so I think the uh, priority for the government should be on that rather than on um, increasing you know, uh, exports to countries that, which at the moment we really see very little uh, penetration in. That was Callum Williams and Lord Marland tussling about Britain's trade outlook. And that's all for this edition of The Economist Asks. For our post-election coverage, do download The Week Ahead tomorrow from The Economist radio feed. We'll be bringing you expert commentary and reactions from Westminster and from our own team of experts too. In London, this is The Economist. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.